Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be speaking out of the book of Acts. All right, well, it is great to have all of you here today. I pray that you are healthy or feeling better on the mend, whatever the case may be, and we're here together to rejoice as a family, to study the Word today. Pray that the Spirit would move on our hearts today and transform us inside and out. Well, we'll turn our attention this morning to Acts chapter 24. We finally made it there, and we'll get through the duration of chapter 24 here this morning. We'll move through the first two sections fairly quickly. Essentially, we'll be dropped right into a courtroom here this morning, and we'll see the defense and the prosecution and the words they have to share. But the headline of this particular text is not the words of either Tertullus, a great orator and lawyer, or that of the Apostle Paul, but rather one by the name of the Governor Felix. And we'll see how he responds to the Word of God here this morning. And so you would just agree with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pause here today and we give you thanks for this day you have given us, Lord. We praise you for it. Father, we've had such a wonderful time already of fellowship together and praising you, singing praises to you, Lord, for you are worthy. You're worthy of our praise today. You're worthy of our lives, Lord, and I pray that that's what we would offer you here today. I would pray now that as we go to the Word and as we learn of a particular individual who heard the gospel preached, that the Word began to grip his heart Sadly, we will see that he rejected it just the same. And Father, I pray that this morning, Lord, you would get a hold of our hearts, and that we wouldn't reject and we wouldn't resist, but that we would surrender, that we'd submit ourselves to you. And so I pray even now, Lord, as we begin our study, that if there be anyone here who does not know you, that today would be that day where they would say yes to you. Or perhaps there's someone here today that may be resisting a working of the Spirit in their lives. Maybe you've convicted in some area, Lord, you've asked for something. Maybe you've put a calling on someone's life, Lord, and they've been reluctant to be obedient and to accept that calling. Whatever the case may be, Lord, I pray that today we would walk from these doors, every single person in this room, myself included, that when we walk from this place, we would be a surrendered people. The world would tell us that surrender is a bad thing, that it's all about us as individuals, that we should do things our way, that we have freedom and rights and Well, there may be elements of that that are true when it comes to the Word of God. We're to be a surrendered people. We're to be submitted to you, Lord. And I pray that even now your Spirit would work in this place, that you do that work in us, Lord. Father, prepare our hearts here for the Word and speak to us this morning, we pray. And that through all of this, Father, I would ask the name of Jesus Christ be magnified and exalted this morning. For it's in His name that we pray. Amen. So Acts 24, here we're catching up again now with Paul. Paul has been on this journey. Of course, he came back to Jerusalem. That was something that was in his heart to do. But as he arrived in Jerusalem, things did not go the way that he had anticipated or planned. As you know, especially if you've joined us over the last several weeks, we had the account of Paul arriving in Jerusalem. And and through three different accounts, great uproars happened and riots occurred. Quite frankly, the people didn't respond to the message the way that Paul anticipated in any way, shape, or form. And Paul was discouraged, but as we discussed last week, in the middle of chapter 23, the Lord manifests Himself to Paul in, in a way that we don't fully know or understand, but we, we, we read in the Word that the Lord comes to Paul and encourages him and says, Be of good cheer, Paul. For He effectively says to him that your ministry is not over. 
There's more work for you to do, Paul. I have more for you. And just as you've testified of me in Jerusalem, you're going to go to Rome and you're going to do the same thing. And that was such an encouragement to Paul. And then through no small miracle did Paul's nephew overhear the intent of 40 plus men who said that they were making it their oath to take Paul's life. That they were going to try and trick the commander of the army there to bring Paul out and that when they did, they would murder him. And Paul's nephew came and told him this and told the commander. And so what happens then is in the middle of the night, essentially almost 500 soldiers come to escort Paul to Caesarea. And this was even more of an encouragement to Paul as he heard from the Lord that he would go to Rome and minister more for him there, that that gave him confidence, that that gave him encouragement that the Lord's hand was upon him, that he had more work for him to do. And then the Lord showed him that, showed him his faithfulness by bringing these soldiers to escort him to Caesarea, sparing his life. For Paul, there had to have been a sense of almost invincibility. And truly, Christian, we can have that same sense that when we are called to do something, when we've heard from the Lord, when He has made a promise of what He is going to do and how He is going to use us, that we can trust that He is faithful and true, that He will carry that out, that He will bring it through to completion. Do you know that even in the darkest of days, that based off of His character alone, the character of our God and Father, that because it is so good, because it is so perfect, that even when we are in the most difficult of circumstances, if we are surrendered to Him, that we can be confident in those very moments that we can say, Lord, I know that what you have for me is good. And I know that you will work it out. And I know that you will carry me through it. We can have that kind of confidence, the same confidence that Paul had. And so now here Paul's been brought to Caesarea. And the amazing thing here is now he's been brought before the governor. Now, Paul had to have been thinking at this point, though things hadn't been going quite as he had planned. I think we can probably all relate to that, that sometimes our plans aren't quite aligned with what God has in mind. We can anticipate or expect that things are going to go differently sometimes. And Paul probably never thought he'd have the opportunity to speak to the Sanhedrin as he had previously. And even though that seemed like a failed attempt, now he was being brought before the governor. And here he was, ready now again to share his testimony and to preach the gospel to the governor. This is an incredible opportunity that he has. And as we pick up here at the beginning of the chapter, we read, Now after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. Now previously to this, he had arrived before the governor at the end of chapter 23, and the governor had said, I will hear you when your accusers have arrived. So five days had passed, now the accusers have arrived, although not all of them, just a couple. He came with elders, and a certain lawyer, essentially, is who this was. He was an orator, but he was an attorney, if you will, a lawyer. He was going to come and make the prosecution against Paul. And the word says, these, those individuals, gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, evidence here is a bit of a subjective term as there's not much evidence that they actually provide. In verse 2 we read, And when he was called upon, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, Seeing that through you we enjoy great peace, now he's speaking to the governor Felix here, and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight, we accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be 
tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. Boy, this is a good lawyer. He understands the art of flattery. Oh, most noble Felix, we've enjoyed so much under your rule. Such peace, such prosperity. You had to imagine here Felix is saying, say more, go on. Tell me a little bit more about this. Tell me how you feel. He's doing a great job of getting his attention at the very beginning. The crazy thing about this is, Felix actually was a very ruthless man. And they didn't enjoy much peace or prosperity under his rule. In fact, any time that there was even a potential uprising from the Jews to try and advocate for their own rights, he would squelch it. He would bring great violence against them and shut it down as quickly as possible. Felix had once been a slave in the Roman Empire, and so he had earned his freedom and he had worked his way up. In fact, he was the first and perhaps the only slave that had ever achieved a role of governor. The problem was, it didn't seem as if his previous experience in his past had impacted at all the way that he would rule. Power had gone to his head, and we'll learn more about that as we go through this chapter. And so this truly is flattery at its best. All the lawyer is attempting to do is get him on his side. And in verse 5, we read, For we have found, and this now begins the accusation that they make against Paul, we have found this man a plague, a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world, and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. So here they mount great swelling lies against Paul. He even goes so far as to accuse the commander Lysias of taking him with great violence. Now, do you remember what happened when the commander came to take Paul? Was it a violent encounter on the part of the commander? No! He saw the Apostle Paul literally being beaten to death and thought to himself, there's a riot. I need to keep the peace. Clearly, this man is at the source of everyone's frustration. I need to pull him out of here to spare his life and to figure out what is going on here. And so this individual had the nerve to even bring the commander into this. Paul's accused of being a plague, a creator of dissension, a ringleader of the Nazarenes, as they refer to it, a profaner of the temple. And we'll hear Paul's rebuttal to this, and he'll be able to speak to some of these things, clearly showing that they're not truthful at all. But as we discussed last week, this is also very similar to what we see with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That Paul is sort of walking this same path and no doubt having an understanding along the way of what his Savior experienced. Further, I suspect that probably all of us can relate to a time in our lives where we felt where we were wrongfully accused. And hopefully it wasn't in a situation of a court of law. For many of us, it may be even the smallest of things, but just that injustice that we sense when we're being told we did something that we didn't do. Yet Paul will see is so calm. No doubt he has a sense of the control of the Lord in his life. 
It's interesting that they refer to him as the ringleader of the Nazarenes here because, of course, as we think about Jesus from Nazareth, right? Nazarenes or Nazareth wasn't looked upon too highly, and certainly in this time it would have probably caught the attention of the governor thinking, I don't want anybody associated with that because anything that would have an impact on the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome would have been dealt with very harshly. They allowed for Jews to operate within the realm, but if there were other religions that were going to start to come in, they knew that there was going to be conflict. They wouldn't want anything to do with that. But it's also interesting that they mention here the Nazarenes because, you know what, this persecution hasn't ended. It hasn't stopped even to this day. You know that in in northern Iraq, there's radical Muslims that are part of ISIS, that they spray paint the Arabic letter N on the homes and businesses of Christians? You know that property owners that are identified as Christ followers are given a choice to convert to Islam, leave, or die. And so there's been a mass exodus from northern Iraq of Christians over the last several years, many of whom are leaving with simply the clothes on their backs. Some of you today may even see people in the U.S. walking around with t-shirts on that have the Arabic letter N on them because they're identifying with those persecuted Christians. But it's such an interesting thing to me that the persecution is alive at this time, and it hasn't stopped even today. Is that not fishy to you? Is it not odd that we don't see any other people group, we don't see any other religion out there that has experienced the persecution that Jews and Christians have experienced throughout time? Does that not cause us to go, hey, maybe there's something to this, that so many in the world seem to care about this particular religion and this one alone, that want to stop it, that want to end it. Satan hasn't stopped attempting to blot out Christianity from all of history. And that same thing's happening here. But these are all accusations that cannot bear the burden of truth. They're lies. With a wonderful thing for Paul, just like any Christian who has a clear conscience, is that we can trust and know that truth is on our side. And Paul was confident of that. As he began in verse 10, Then Paul, after the governor had nodded to him to speak, answered, Inasmuch as I know that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. No flattery on the part of Paul here. He's not going to attempt to woo Governor Felix over. He's simply going to state what he knows. You've been a judge for many years. And based off of the prosecution that's come against me here, I don't mind at all answering for myself. He says, because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Now, I took about that long just to get through chapter 23, so you may have lost track. But the thing is here is Paul's saying, I just came to Jerusalem 12 days ago, and the majority of those, I've been in prison. How could I have even done all these things? That had to have resonated with Felix. That Yeah, this seems like a pretty reasonable case to make. And so he says in verse 12, And they neither found me in the temple, disputing with anyone, nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. For them to have claimed that he profaned the temple, he said, I would have had to have done something in the temple. And you can find that there is no record that I was even really there. In fact, the only record that did exist was the fact that Paul was paying the way for those who had made a Nazarite vow to be purified before they went into the temple. So in fact, their accusation was entirely wrong. It was just the opposite. Paul was actually going through, if you recall, 
the Jewish process of purification with these men who had made a Nazarite vow at the request of James so that Paul could show that, hey, I'm not out there saying that everything about the Jewish law is foolishness. You go back a few chapters. So it couldn't have been true. Further, in verse 13, nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. There's no proof, he says. Ask them. Ask them to prove it to you. But this I confess to you, that according to the way, now this is how Paul refers to it as, and we see Christianity referred to as the way throughout the word, which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Here he says, and this is something that really has to get them, especially for Ananias, the high priest, is that he says, listen, I worship the same God that they do. I worship the God of my fathers. They also accept that. This had to be somewhat confusing to Felix as they suggested that Paul here was creating dissension amongst the Jews when he said, no, no, no. I believe in the law. I believe everything that they believe. You see, for a Jewish Christian, it wasn't that they wanted to reject the law. It was quite the opposite. And we see that carried out in Scripture, that for us as Christians, us too today, even Gentiles being grafted in, that we're the fulfillment of it. So it wasn't that Paul was rejecting any of it, but rather saying, I believe it all. But the Savior has come, the Messiah. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And as he mentions here the fact that I believe in the resurrection of the dead, the just and the unjust, just like they do, would have put them then in a spot where they had to defend themselves to say, well, does he not agree with your law? Do you not believe like he believes? Suddenly he was putting themselves into the same bucket with them. And that was going to make it very difficult for them to try and accuse him anymore of creating dissension. And he goes on to tell him more about how he came to Jerusalem. In verse 17, now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation. Of course, we know that Paul had desired to come to Jerusalem for many years. And as the Lord began to confirm for him that that is where he was going, he began to take up an offering to bring to the church there. In verse 18, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council. And so here he says, where are my accusers, essentially? If they said that I did these things, why haven't they come? There should have been many that observed these accusations that could come and could testify of this, but they're not here. And he says, let them tell me if there's been any wrongdoing. Verse 21, unless... It is for this one statement, which I cried out standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead. I am being judged by you this day. And this is wonderful that we see this here because this sort of gives us insight into Paul's conviction, if you will. Now, if you recall from the end of chapter 22 into 23, when Paul was standing there before the Sanhedrin and things started to go sideways, Paul cried out, about being persecuted for his belief in the resurrection, knowing full well in the Sanhedrin he had both Pharisee and Sadducee. Pharisees believing in angels and the resurrection, Sadducees believing in, in neither of those things. And knowing that there was division amongst them, he aligned himself with the Pharisees, saying that he believed in the resurrection. And at that point, the Sadducees and Pharisees began to debate amongst themselves, and effectively his life was spared. Now, a lot of people debate, was it wrong for Paul to say that? Should he have said that? 
And here, I think it gives us a little insight into Paul saying, hey, listen, if there was any wrongdoing, maybe I shouldn't have said that. He's willing to recognize perhaps an error that he made. But beyond that, he's saying nobody else can confirm these accusations that have been made against me. No flattery from Paul. Twelve days is all that he's been there. He says, I worship the same God. We believe the same things. There should be plenty passionate witnesses, but where are they? And so when Felix heard these things in verse 22, the word says, having more accurate knowledge of the way, he adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias the commander comes down, I will make a decision on your case. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. Now this is where our attention really needs to hone in here on what's going to happen in these remaining verses of the chapter. Because this is really, if you will, where the rubber hits the road as it relates to Felix and Felix's heart. It says that Felix heard these things and he had a more accurate knowledge of the way. He was beginning to understand more clearly what this Christianity thing was all about. And no doubt he had some level of sympathy for Paul because he keeps him in custody there, but it says that he let him have liberty. Essentially, he wasn't just stuck in a prison cell, but he was given the ability to walk about the area. He would just have a guard that was attached to him at all times, likely for about six-hour shifts. And for Paul, that had to have just been a wonderful blessing. (laughs) Because he had somebody that was tied to him all of the time so that he could just one by one preach the gospel and see the whole palace guard saved. Paul had a great perspective. But this tells us that Felix was responding in some way. That the Spirit was drawing him to repentance. That the Spirit was giving him understanding. The problem is here is that Felix was attempting to walk the line. He was striving to please both under the guise of needing some more evidence. We'll wait till Claudius comes. And Claudius actually never comes. But we'll wait till he comes and we'll, we'll gather more evidence and, and then we'll make a decision. Folks, this is the perfect example of someone who has heard the gospel, been convicted, been gripped by it, yet resists the truth. Begins to try and live with one foot in the world and one foot out. This is the beginning of Felix's foolishness. And there may be some of you here today that are attempting to do the same thing. Or maybe you've had this experience in your life as well when you were resisting what you knew to be truth. The Holy Spirit was drawing you and you were resisting it. Wherever the case may be, it's foolishness to resist what God is trying to do in our lives. And this is what was happening with Felix. And it's at this moment, no doubt, that he began to become increasingly miserable. And I got to tell you, I love it when I see a person in that state. Don't get me wrong. I don't wish misery upon them. But it's a wonderful thing when people will come to me and we've been praying through something or they've been dealing with something and I know that they haven't yet surrendered their life to the Lord and they are just getting more miserable and more miserable and more miserable to where you get to the place where you can say, are you ready to give up yet? Is it working? Is it working out yet? Is your plan working out yet? No, it's not. Are you ready to surrender to the Lord? Yes. But then they do and they begin to see how God works in their lives and that surrender comes in such a beautiful thing. And so here's the crazy thing that begins to happen with Felix is like I said, Claudius doesn't come. Felix isn't able to get that additional evidence that he wants from Claudius, yet he keeps Paul imprisoned. 
But he doesn't just keep him in prison, he continues to engage with him. Paul continues to have the ear of Felix to be able to share with him about various things. And we read in verse 24, And after some days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. You hear that? He comes with his wife, and he hears him concerning faith in Christ. Why did he come to him? We don't entirely know. Maybe he was entertained by it. Again, the drawing of the Spirit, he wanted to hear more about this thing. His wife, Drusilla, was Jewish. She certainly knew some things about what he was saying, what he was talking about. And so they come to Paul, and it's evident within Scripture, within the original language, too, that they did so on a fairly regular basis. And in verse 25, it says, As he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and answered, Go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. He heard him concerning faith in Jesus Christ, but he rejected it. And you might be saying, no, he just delayed it. He just said, you know, I need some more time. I need to consider this thing. He wanted to hear more. He wanted to learn more. And maybe you're in that spot this morning. Whether it's fear, boy, if I fully surrender, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? How's that going to change my life? Maybe it's loss. What am I going to have to give up? Maybe it's doubt. I don't know what all of this means. I don't know if I can trust this. I don't know if I can believe in this. Whatever is your motivation. And listen, if you're here and you're fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet maybe there's also something again in your life that the the Spirit's been prompting that He's been trying to get a hold of your heart. He's been saying, hey, I want obedience here. And, And you're resisting in that same way. Don't fool yourself because to delay is to simply reject. Plain and simple. John chapter 5, verse 40, Jesus says to his disciples, But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. We must be willing. We must be willing. Yes, it's the Spirit that draws one under repentance. It's the Spirit that gives us understanding. But we still must be willing. We must be the ones that say, Okay, okay, I surrender. We have that responsibility. And so Paul, it says, reasoned with them about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Is that what you would have picked? Are those the topics you would hit on? Felix was a ruthless, immoral leader who was in an adulterous relationship with a 20-year-old, and she happened to be the sister of Herod Agrippa II. He was the governor and the current earthly authority residing over Paul's future. And Paul has the audacity to preach about righteousness, self-control, and judgment. You think he was led of the Spirit there? You think that might have been what Felix and Drusilla needed to hear? Let's recognize here once again that Paul knew who was in charge, right? So he wasn't afraid of Felix. Further, he knew that when God was in control, when he was a man, when Paul fully committed his life, especially even coming out of Jerusalem there, knowing, okay, God has got this. I'm going to be somebody who, just like we talked about last week, if I want to lay claim to the promises of the Word of God, then I need to understand whose claim is on me, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. That if He belongs to Him, then He's not going to worry about pleasing men. And that's the way it should be with us. So he wasn't concerned about if he was going to offend Felix. He was going to be concerned about preaching the truth. And so imagine here, 
Paul being concerned with telling Felix and Drusilla exactly what they needed to hear. Not what they may have wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. And imagine, if you will, that they listened. They listened, they heard him. Doesn't mean they didn't get upset. Doesn't mean that they weren't uncomfortable with it, but they heard him. Now, this may be tough for us to comprehend today because sadly today we are so well acquainted with preachers who want to give a tickling of the ears and tell people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. Far too many churches today are filled with people who are willing to just entertain. And there are wonderful, wonderful churches out there, okay? This is not an indictment, and this is not me saying, oh, this is the only place. Not at all. But there are still way too many churches today that are unwilling to share the truth, to preach a full gospel, to talk about the God of the Bible, to be willing to deal with the things in our culture that we need to hear, things like sin, righteousness, self-control, judgment. And that's exactly what Paul addressed. Many of you love David Guzik. You read his commentary, you love to hear his teaching. I'm one of those people as well. And you know that he loves to quote Charles Spurgeon. He does so on a regular basis. And I found this particular quote struck right to the heart of this matter. Are there not some to be found who think the highest object of the minister is to attract the multitude and then to please them? Oh my God, how solemnly ought each of us to bewail our sin. If we feel we have been guilty in this matter, what is it to have pleased men? Is there anything in it that can make our head lie easy on the pillow of our death? Is there anything in it that can give us boldness in the day of judgment when we face the tribunal, O judge of quick and dead? No, my brethren, we must always take our texts so that we may bear upon our hearers with all our might. But some men will say, Sir, ministers ought not to be personal. Ministers ought to be personal, and they will never be true to their master until they are. But now we poor craven sons of nobodies have to stand and talk about generalities. But we are afraid to point you out and tell you of your sins personally. But blessed be God, from that fear I have been delivered long ago, there walketh not a man on the surface of this earth whom I dare not reprove. Spurgeon had a sense of his calling in the fact that he was to call men out for their sin. And if we are not willing to come together in this way and do the very same thing, then we're missing out on much of what the Lord has to do and giving the Spirit the opportunity to work in our lives. I've said on many occasions, even as recently as Wednesday night, that if we're not willing to come into this room and sit next to one another and turn to our left and turn to our right and be willing to be vulnerable and transparent and say, hey, I'm struggling, or hey, I fell into sin, or this is going on in my life, then we, with the most emphatic statement that I can give you, are not the church, or at least being the church that we're called to be. Righteousness and self-control. This had to do with sin. It had to do with sin. Both of these things, the righteousness and the self-control, were heat-seeking missiles to the hearts of Felix and Drusilla. They must come to recognize the sin in their lives and do something about it, as each of us too must do. But we don't want to talk about sin today. Warren Wearsby, in his commentary on Acts 24, cites these particular studies, the first of which was in 1973. Okay, 1973. Things have gotten so much better since then, right? Dr. Carl Menninger, one of the world's leading psychiatrists. Okay, this is a psychiatrist in 73. Published a book entitled, Whatever Became of Sin? 
He pointed out that the very word sin has gradually dropped out of our vocabulary. He said we talk about mistakes, weaknesses, inherited tendencies, faults, and even errors, but we do not face up to the fact that it is sin. Another by the name of Phyllis McGinley said this, they are only immature or underprivileged or frightened or more particular, sick, but never in sin. Friends, may I just say to us this morning that we are sinners? Can we be not okay with that, (laughs) but accepting of that? That the Word of God says that there are none righteous? No, not one? That because of this, we are deserving of death and eternal punishment? And so then what does Paul address with Felix? But the judgment to come. Right? This was the natural progression of where he was going. And once again, we're far too familiar with preachers today who in supposed enlightenment have decided that any mention of judgment or of hell is offensive and uncomfortable. And therefore, we should not mention it. We should just be like Jesus and just love people. And I don't try to say that mockingly, though it certainly sounds foolish when I hear it. Uncomfortable? Be like Jesus? My goodness, what would be more uncomfortable than a torment and an eternal fire that's never quenched? What would show more love than to know that that's where someone is headed and say, I want to do everything in my power to keep you from going there? And speaking of Jesus, may we not recognize that He and He alone in the Word of God is the one who talked about hell more than any other topic or any other person? And we want to somehow say that it's not right? Many of you may be familiar with the book The Screwtape Letters. C.S. Lewis, it's a great book by C.S. Lewis. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to do so because it's written from the perspective of demons. It's written from the perspective of Satan in hell. And so everything in it is sort of reversed. As it talks about the enemy, what they're talking about is God. And it gives such incredible insight into how that realm operates. And one of the sections of it says this, My dear Wormwood, and this is one of the demons, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient, that's us, in ignorance of your own existence. That question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command, Satan. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, he therefore cannot believe in you. Yet in our own churches today, we're saying, no, let's not talk about that. In fact, some are even doubting that it's there altogether. The enemy has successfully convinced us that sin, judgment, and hell are not real, that we're all okay, and that flies entirely in the face of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We cannot highlight our Bibles with Sharpies. We can't gloss over the predominant teaching of Jesus in exchange for a soft, feel-good message that sends us happily and ignorantly right into hell. Now, let's come back from this heavy place. Because here's the thing. Here's the beautiful thing when you look at this message and you start to think about what Paul was doing here. Because this, this right here, certainly if somebody were to take this excerpt from our teaching today or is on our streaming, we're streaming now. People are watching from other places. It's a wonderful thing. If we were to cut it right here, they may say, yeah, see, that's the hellfire and brimstone type preaching that we don't need here today anymore. But where Felix was going with this was not a place of condemnation. He was helping them to see, 
to see who he was, to see what he needed. If we could here, look at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And so if we pause there, we can recognize that that's us, that's all of us. But it doesn't end there. For in verse 21, Paul goes on to say, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do we understand that today? But yes, we can sit here today and we can say, yeah, we're sinners. We're miserable. We're lost without Him. But in Him, this righteousness that He talks about, this self-control, all of this can be found in Him. Folks, this morning we must understand that in Jesus Christ we've been forgiven, we've been justified. And we can stand before Him and know that we have the promise of eternal life in heaven. Amen? And this is what he was trying to get Felix to understand. That Listen, Felix, I'm not trying to tell you you're a bad guy. But you are. But so am I. But that's not the point here. We must recognize that and know that someone died for you. And what happened here with Felix? It says that he trembled. Do you know what that means in the original language? That he was terrified. And that's the thing today. The world today will want to say, yeah, those crazy preachers, they're just going to scare you. They want to scare you into believing about hell. They want to scare you into believing in Jesus Christ. It's just scare tactics. Listen, if you're not afraid of hell, then, well, then something's wrong. And if you are, I commend you and I say, well, praise God. We should be. We should be terrified. But we then, in light of that, should rejoice because if that's what's before us, we should say, is there any way out? Can I avoid this in any way? And boom, right there is Jesus Christ saying, yes, absolutely, you can. He was terrified. The conviction had come. The word was gripping his heart and his response. What was his response, friends? Go away. When it is convenient, I will call for you. And such sobering, such profound words that are far too often spoken. Countless people, some of whom may be here today, have spoken similar words. But 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. It's now. And so for those who have yet to believe, today is the day. For those who have yet to fully surrender, today is the day. For those who are saved but have been resisting the call in their lives to respond to the Lord in some way, and only you know what that is, today's the day. For those that are resisting conviction in some area in your life, today is the day. Don't like Felix, say, go away. I'll call when it's convenient. Because for Felix, that convenient time never came. Verse 26, Meanwhile, he also hoped that money would be given him by Paul, that he might release him. Therefore, he sent for him more often and conversed with him. But after two years, 
Portius Festus succeeded Felix, and Felix, wanting to do the Jews a favor, wanting to please man, left Paul bound. The convenient time for Felix never came. Two years passed, and Paul remained imprisoned, and that would continue. But for Paul, it was hardly a prison. It was his call to ministry, because he knew he was right where the Lord wanted him to be. I would venture to say that it was for Felix. It was him who was in prison. Because no doubt he was miserable as he continued to resist the drawing of the Spirit in his own life. Do we grasp that here today? This is not for us at this moment, right? At this very moment, here's what needs to be in our minds. Yes, for some of us, we may be grieving right now over someone who's lost. And that's a wonderful thing. That prompts us to action. If you're here today and you are saved, you are a believer in Jesus Christ, we get to praise. We get to praise Him. For yes, for as heavy as some of this is that Paul was obedient and bringing before Felix, we can look at that and we say, yeah, I learned that about myself too. That in and of myself, I couldn't stand before the Lord. But He justified me. He took care of it. We can sing from what I praise, the depths of our soul, the most energy and emotion that we can muster up to just try and say, thank you, Lord. But I'd be neglectful if I didn't say or give the opportunity if there were some here today that maybe needed to respond to this somehow. And so with bowed heads and with eyes closed, I want to give the opportunity today for someone here that may need to rededicate their life to the Lord, that may need to surrender for the first time to say, yes, Lord, I want you. And so if there's anybody here right now that you have never given your life to the Lord, or maybe you know you're in a place where you need to make that commitment again, you need to say, Lord, I'm sorry that I've wandered away and and I want you to know I want to live my life for you. If there's anyone here today that's you, I would just ask you to pray. Just pray, Lord. Father in heaven, forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. I recognize that my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for my sins. That His blood was shed. His body torn open. He willingly went to the cross to pay the price for me. And I believe that. I proclaim that. And I receive that into my life and into my heart. And Father, I want Jesus Christ to reign in my heart all my days. Save me, Lord. If that's you, you just need to pray that prayer and believe that and commit to repentance, to turn the other way, to do a 180 from the direction you've been heading in and saying, Lord, I I need to hear from you. I want to follow after you. And maybe you're here today and, and you know there's just something in your life that you've been resisting. And while you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, like Felix, you've sort of said, go away, Holy Spirit. It's not convenient for me right now. And I would encourage you in the same way to just say, Lord, I'm sorry for that. I'm sorry for rejecting what it is that you want to do in my life. And so, Lord, I ask forgiveness. I repent of that. And I receive, Lord, what you have for me. And whatever it is, no matter how uncomfortable it may be, no matter how difficult, no matter how much it stretches me, may I just know and be confident that if that's your plan for me, that it's perfect and it's good and that that's what I want in my life. Lord, you are so good that you care enough about us, Lord to meet us right where we are, that you've created the heavens and the earth, that you've breathed life into us, that, Lord, in our sin, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us, that, Lord Jesus, before you ascended into heaven, you said, I'm not leaving you as an orphan. I'm sending a helper to you, a comforter, one to walk alongside you. And so we have the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's in our midst here today, working in us and convicting us. That's the power of the Spirit speaking and prompting. So may we rejoice here this morning as we sing now. May we rejoice 
if not simply, and it's not a simple thing, but for what the Lord has done to say thank you, may we also rejoice in the fact that the presence of God is amongst us. And that's a wonderful and amazing thing. And as we were saying earlier, Lord, set a fire in our hearts here today. As I prayed in the beginning that we would walk out of this place here today a surrendered people. And that as a good shepherd, Lord, you'd go before us and each and every day this week and every day moving forward, you'd be prompting things in our hearts, Lord, that we could truly live the way that you desire for us to live. That we could be a genuine people here together, transparent, vulnerable with one another, letting each other know when we're struggling, praying for one another. Father, do that work in us, Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.